Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. So, so for me, sanctions is by far the riskiest area in financial crimes. So we talk about AML, we talk about Peruvian corruption and uh, modern day slavery, but sanctions for me is the number one area. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher, I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine and the GRC Professional Online. And today we have Julian Hunt from Flight Centre. Hi, Julian. Hi, Kwame. How are you? So last time we spoke, um, and it was really an article format, we really discussed um, human trafficking and modern slavery and sort of the exposure to businesses from that perspective. But uh, this time around, we're going to be looking at sanctions. So I'm really going to jump straight into it, you know. What is it organizations are often getting wrong when it comes to dealing with sanction-related risks? Look, it's an interesting point, Kwame. It's a, um, <clears throat> so I've been involved in sanctions for a number of years. I'm certainly not a sanctions technical guru by any means, but uh, I mean, I've dabbled in sanctions for many years in Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. Um, so I think the best way to answer that question would be from an Australian perspective um, in terms of where we are and where Australia is compared to our international counterparts. Um, so look, the key, I think some of the key areas uh, that I've seen uh, most directly uh, for organisations that work for, and certainly for what I'm seeing in Australia is, is not really looking at sanctions as a, as a serious area under consideration within the overall financial crime program. Um, so, so for me, sanctions is by far the riskiest area within financial crimes. So we talk about AML and we talk about Peruvian corruption and uh, modern day slavery, but, but sanctions for me is, is the number one area. So what are some of the areas that, that concern me in terms of, you know, uh, poor application of, of sanctions? And, and when I say poor application, I actually mean uh, having an appropriate policy and procedures. So um, many organisations will combine a policy and procedures into one document. Now, essentially, the policy should be very high level and talks about why, why, we, why we have to comply with sanctions, be it UN or be it Australia or overseas, whatever. But the procedures is really what it's all about. Uh, the procedures is, is how do we actually comply? This is an area that organisations don't do very well in, um, certainly from, from what I've seen overseas and certainly here in Australia as well. So, so what, essentially what they try to do is tick a box and say, yes, yes, we do comply. But, it, but the next step is how do we comply? And that's a, and that's a very technical area and, and it is certainly a very difficult area to actually comply with and certainly giving guidance to the business that, depending if you're a non-bank or if you're, or if you're actual bank, what does it actually mean? Because when we talk about sanctions, we're talking about global, international, geopolitical events, and what does that mean for the organisation? Right, right. So, so for me, it's it's probably the it's probably the program, and um, the sanctions sit within the financial crime program, and um, have the policies and procedures being being written in a manner that actually has substance, as opposed to just sitting there with you know trying to tick a box. So that's that's probably the key for me. Uh, training and communication is certainly another area in Australia that I see is very poor. Uh, trying to communicate what sanctions exposure we have and absolutely around the risk assessment. So what does it mean around the risk assessment, products, services, suppliers, customers, etc.? And what that essentially means is many Australian organisations, be it banks or non-banks, naively assume that um, Australia is, is, is really protected from sanctions, which, which, which is obviously not true at all. Um, and when you look at um, extraterritorial impact in the US, it is significant. And two examples, I mean, just last month, April um, of this year, we saw uh, Unicredit 
which is an Italian bank, fined 1.3 billion sanctions, and uh, Standard Chartered Bank um, was a follow-up of one billion dollars as well. So just you know, just just one month um, in April, we saw nearly 2.5 billion dollars in fines, um, and those fines would have been because of the extraterritorial um, impact from the U.S. Right, right. Um, first of all, I have to apologize to you, Julian. I think something went wrong with the recording just then. Um, okay. But we'll continue on and I'll just see how it comes out afterwards. Yeah, no problems, man. Right, no uh, so I guess the next question following on just from that one is what I'm interested about is at the Congress um, two weeks ago, um, one of the issues that was highlighted was that people felt that they weren't quite getting quite enough information from the regulator about what they expected in certain things. Do you think there's enough information filtering down from regulators like Austrac about what is required when it comes to compliance around sanctions and risk-related issues around sanctions? Um, I would say I would say no. Now, that's a, it's an interesting question, and I think one of the reasons for that is, is that there is no clear regulator here in Australia. Um, obviously, that um, Austrac... Uh, there is some overlap into Austrac in terms of um, having a risk assessment in terms of, you know, if, if there is a sanctions issue, is there an obligation to submit an SMR? But essentially sits with DFAT. So, so, so Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is the administrator of sanctions. Right. So, so this is definitely one of the problems in terms of guidance um, and also in terms of the probably the lack of understanding in terms of where the sanctions sit. So, so there is talk in the next year or two that, that sanctions may actually sit within Austrac, and that would that would definitely change the the um, you know the actual playing field. Meaning that um, if if Austrac do oversee and supervise sanctions and obviously compliance with sanctions, that that will ensure well that 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 will make um, financial institutions obviously um, incorporate their sanctions regime and their sanctions program within their financial crime and AML program. So I think to answer your question, I think you're spot on. Uh, guidance and direction in terms of sanctions um, and trying to comply with sanctions and guidance in Australia is, I think, poor comparatively. But I think one of the reasons for that, because it's kind of sitting in the abyss, is that there is no supervisor and oversight for sanctions at this, at this point. Right, right, of course. Um, and I guess if we could sort of look at maybe what some organizations who are tackling these types of risks, what maybe there's some effective methods that you have heard or have seen being done that companies can do. And yeah, look, you're right. It's, it really goes back to the program, training and awareness and, and making sure you have senior management buy-in. Um, certainly from an Australian perspective, be it if you're a bank or if you're a non-bank, it's, it's really just understanding what, where those risks actually sit and truly understanding what those geopolitical events actually are. So many organisations are very reactive. So essentially what that means is they'll wait for the UN or they'll wait for DFAT to actually make a, um, an organisation or particular sector sanction and blacklist. And then, and then many organisations obviously uh, have to think about how, how they're going to react to that in terms of policies, procedures, screening, having blacklists, etc. But most of what I've experienced around economic sanctions is it's, there's a lead up to it. Right. Because sanctions is obviously a tool that, that governments use um, rather than using measures, you know, that invo involve armed force, for example. For example, so what they're trying to do is just basically um, influence and, um, I suppose, a political regime within the jurisdictions. So, I think an organisation that is uh, proactive and in understanding the international political events um, out of the market at the moment 
should be well prepared for any changes in the um, in the sanctions environment. So obviously we're seeing a lot of activity recently with, with the US uh, uh, dropping out the joint um, plan, action plan with um, with the European uh, colleagues in China and um, and Russia. That's obviously heated. Uh, that's obviously uh, caused tensions with Iran. We're, we're currently seeing a lot of noise out there between Iran and the US at the moment. Um, so that probably will suggest ongoing sanctions and probably increase in sanctions as well. Uh, Venezuela is, a, is another very good example. Obviously, we've seen a, um, a possible regime change in, in Venezuela. If you have operations or suppliers or any products or services involved in some of these jurisdictions, you obviously need to be proactive and understand what what does that mean for you. So rather than just having an aim or program in place and training and awareness, you truly need to understand what are those international uh, geopolitical events going on at this point in time and, and making sure prepared. And Libya was a classic example. So when we had the... Uh, the uprising in, in North Africa and the Middle East uh, would have been probably a good 10 years ago now. Banks were not ready for that. And um, it, it really caught them, it caught them out and um, it was purely reactive. So it's, it's understanding what's going on globally. Right, exactly. Um, and I guess one of the things that came out of, because you've, you've mentioned it a few times now, you talked a bit about, you know, the importance of awareness and importance of training and the impact that that has. And I think this goes back to something that you talked about when we were discussing modern slavery last time, which was that question of skill sets and skills that you need. And I remember that you said that the skills that you need to sort of check your supply chain from a modern slavery perspective is not all that different from what you'd be doing in your AML and your CTF program. So is that the same for sanctions? Is the same sort of skills that we need there? I'd say similar skills. Um, sanctions, you do need to have a, um, you need to be technically very, very strong and, and, and um, obviously understanding what, what those sanctions requirements are. So from a sanctions perspective, much more much more technical, but in order to develop and draft a, a, a program and certainly have a, a policies and procedures and screening in place, I would say much of that is transferable. It, uh, it sits within that risk assessment and truly understanding where those risks actually are. So when we talk about risk assessment, and certainly what we're doing at Flyson is, is we, we conduct risk assessments primarily on the jurisdictions. Uh, that's what we focus our attention on. And then the second aspect of that is we'll start to look at land, which is supplies. And some of the areas we're looking at would be um, obviously China and North Korea, for example, uh, because you need to be very mindful of, um, of secondary sanctions that the US actually have in place now. So a, a similar skill set, certainly around the policies, procedures and, and creating a framework, but technically for from an advisory perspective, um, it, it's it's slightly a different skill, uh, one that you must acquire um, over time, and and obviously understand the the legal implications of what that means. Right, of course. And of course, the other thing, and when we talked about all those different elements that organizations need to be pay, pay attention to under their AML CTF regime and so on, is that I guess that risk of silos and siloing of information is that something you think happens a lot when people deal with sanctions and then with fraud and then anti money laundering. Absolutely. Uh, that's that's definitely a concern that I've had from, um, I suppose, from day one around economic sanctions. Um, and I think you probably need to build it into your, into your corporate strategy, into the organisation's corporate strategy, because, I mean, obviously, if you're looking at potential mergers, acquisitions um, as part of your business um, plan, as part of your corporate strategy, you need to understand what that actually impact is for you. Um, so... I think probably from a from a from a strategic perspective, very important to be involved in. Uh, 
but also um, across across the divisions and understanding what the businesses are doing. So moving outside that silos, because obviously you can't put controls in place and you certainly can't advise the business accordingly if you don't understand what they're actually doing. So this goes back to the risk assessment and making sure that the products and services are risk assessed before they're actually rolled out, not just in terms of the AML implications, but also in terms of the sanctions implications to understand are there any actual sanctions risks that we need to consider, um, be it sectorial, be it country or, or, or or be an individual. So again, similar to other areas of financial crime, but probably more to corporate level and, and probably more strategic. Okay. And is there anything... And so we gave some examples, you know, looking at the United States and the sanctions in terms of relationship with China and relationships with Venezuela and so on. But is there anything particularly unique about Australian businesses uh, that they need to be aware of when it comes to sanctions and what's coming down from DFAT? Um, well, I think I touched on this earlier that many many Australian companies, um, certainly the non-banks, believe that their exposure to to, to sanctions is, is is pretty much minimal, which is you know, which is obviously not the case at all. Mm. Um, I, I think it's um, I think it's fair to say, and um, I do recall reading some research on this quite quite recently from Thomson Reuters, and um, I think it was two thousand and sixteen. We uh, they found that about ninety eight percent of of the companies uh, that were fined by the US, ninety eight percent of those were actually non banks. So. Um, I would argue that the, that the non-banks are certainly more, uh, certainly quite a few years behind, where the financial institutions are, are more mature. Mm-hmm. Um, but from an Australian perspective, that would be my number one concern: would be the non-banks and, and understanding what the, where those risks are, and truly understanding that the impact is on them. Um, certainly, there's a US nexus, meaning that if they're dealing with um, US persons or they're dealing, in, you know, obviously the US dollar or US company or it's going to the financial sector. Um, in mind, 70 to 80% of all global transactions are US dollar based, which which essentially means that um, you know there is significant exposure to the US. Um, the, the, and I think the second thing is probably secondary sanctions. Yeah. Um, so secondary sanctions is obviously what primary sanctions is where you're dealing with a sanctioned person or a sanctioned um, entity directly. Uh, uh, where the secondary sanctions is there is no US nexus involved in that transaction, but the US has knowledge that you are dealing with someone of, of interest or concern from a US perspective. So even though you fall outside the primary sanctions aspect from a legal perspective, the US can still actually do you for secondary sanctions. So a good example of that would be an Australian company dealing with a, um, a, a Chinese company that's, that's directly dealing with North Korea. Um, even though there's no US aspect to it, uh, the US would still see that as falling within their mandate. And essentially what that would mean is basically de-risking. So I think um, the secondary sanctions is very key for for Australian companies, um, especially the non-financial institutions. Another part for me, which be uh, is is really around beneficial ownership. Um, I, I do honestly think um, Australia's standards around identifying the beneficial owner mm-hmm. and the natural person is actually pretty poor, um, certainly from what I've seen globally. So um, under the US sanctions and around the 50% rule, if you don't truly understand who actually owns that company and who you're dealing with, and if, there's a, if, there, if there is an SDN, a sanctioned party sitting behind there, then obviously you are captured as well. So for me, the probably three key areas I think Australia really needs to consider would be the um, the non-banks and in terms of their exposure and really understanding where those risks are. The secondary sanctions is certainly an issue and certainly around the transparency around um, beneficial owner, uh, the 50% rule. 
And what I usually say in all my training exercises and um, certainly I provide advice is just understand, is there a US nexus involved in that transaction? Um, and what I've seen, some organisations here here in Australia, that, that they will look at a transaction and they'll confirm that there is no US nexus involved, but they may actually have a US person involved in the transaction working for the organisation, which brings a US jurisdiction, obviously, within that transaction itself. So they're probably the key takeouts for me from an Australian perspective, mm-hmm. um, obviously, with the awareness and training and everything else. And um, I do think things will change significantly over the coming years, especially if track uh, do take ownership um, for, for sanctions and, and, and supervise. Right, of course. And I guess this is just really to consolidate uh, much of what we've already spoken about over these last, I think, about 15 minutes now. Um, and is, do you have any advice for, you know, governance risk and compliance professionals who have been charged with sort of building san- building this sort of awareness of sanction-related risks into their framework? I, I think really going back to the nuts and bolts of the risk assessment, <clears throat> understanding what their products and services are and understanding if there's any international exposure. Um, so for Australia, I'd certainly be looking at the likes of North Korea. Do they have any exposure to China via North Korea? Uh, do they actually have a screening tool in place? So um, obviously the banks are very advanced in this area, so they'll have teams that are screening, um, both, you know, like a level one, level two team, and obviously we do full due diligence on that, uh, certainly from a name screening perspective as well as payments. But, but, but if you look at the normal, if you look at the smaller organisations out there, uh, they're not using screening tools. Um, so they don't really know who their suppliers or customers actually are. So now from a simple perspective, I'd be looking at a screening tool just to give you some comfort and um, obviously with the risk assessment to, to complement that as well. Don't don't overcomplicate it. Uh, don't overcomplicate the program. I mean, you can make sanctions a very, very technical area, but depending on the size of your organisation, it's probably no need to. Keep it simple. And don't write a policy or procedure that you can't comply with. That's, that's something I've seen many, many times is that the... The policy reads really, really well, but essentially many of these companies have just copied and pasted a policy from from a competitor online. Right. But actually, it lacks substance. Just make sure it's um, it's readable. Just make sure it's simplistic, and, and make sure it's implemented. Because um, people just assume, and compliance officers just assume that the policy will tick the box. But if someone comes in and actually tests that policy, um, there's a very good chance it's, it's not going to um, it's not going to stand up to regulatory scrutiny. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, Julian, for your time today. Thank you, Kwan. Thank you for listening to the GRC Professional Podcast. This podcast was produced by the GRC Institute, and the original music was written by Rob Neary.